I like to say, you know, the deal closes, marketing doesn't stop. You want to make sure you have a robust IR plan in place. You want to make sure you're visible. You want to make sure you're well prepared. If 2021 has taught us anything, is that the SPAC structure is here to stay, and it's a viable alternative to the traditional IPO. Most people miss a lot of pieces of each of those steps and thus end up in a place that they don't want to be. You know, being a public company can be really hard, and small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 plus years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market, the media, and other stakeholders. We'll demystify these groups in an effort to help companies do what they do best, build their company, and unlock their true potential. Today we're talking SPACs, where they've come from, why they've gotten so much traction, and how the capital markets have adapted to the structure. We'll also dive into potential regulation, the pipe market, and how marketing a SPAC differs from an IPO. You couldn't ask for more of an authority on SPACs and transactions in general than my guest today. Don Duffy is president of ICR and my business partner for over 20 years. Before ICR, Don spent a decade as a portfolio manager and a research analyst and co-founded asset management firms Meyer Duffy Associates and Meyer Duffy Ventures. Don is an expert in complex corporate transactions, and he's worked with hundreds of SPACs since their emergence almost 15 years ago. He's got an incredibly comprehensive view of the current landscape and the evolution of the structure and where it's going. Let's enter the arena with Don Duffy. Don, you finally made the big time. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Gosh, when you do that bio, I feel so old. <laughs> I know. Well, I didn't put any dates in there. So we could be talking about a million things given what's going on in 2021, but gravity's kind of taken us to the SPAC conversation, I think, a little bit. So, you know, we've been involved in SPACs for a really long time, as you know, probably 10 years. What do you remember about SPACs? 10 years ago and the market's appetite for those, what were they like? Wait a minute, what's a SPAC? <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, listen, when we did the first uh, SPACs, probably actually probably 14 years ago, the structure back then was really used as a alternative uh, for companies that could not do an IPO. And it's very important to kind of differentiate because Back then, if you did a SPAC deal, you probably went to a banker and considered an IPO, and they told you NFW. And so you walked out of that room and said, gosh, I need a way to get public, and the only way I can get public is a reverse merger. Oh, and by the way, somebody said there's this SPAC structure. And there were probably you know one or two distinguishing factors that are very, very different than the market today. The first was a lot of the early ones wanted to provide the company selling shareholders almost all or majority liquidity, meaning if I owned 100% of the company, they might cash me out. And that was an awkward structure just because anytime you're buying something where the other side is a total seller, you probably should proceed with caution. 
And then the other thing I think many of them had were teams that were, it's not about being ready for public market, but almost inappropriate for the public market. Bankers didn't want to touch them because their team probably shouldn't have been part of a public company. So it was just a, you know, a mismatch in a lot of ways for the public markets. Yeah. And I mean, these were not Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley deals at that point. So, you know, I think the, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I think the appetite and the market for those transactions really soured. And although, you know, there was like a onesie twosies here and there, you know, it was just, it felt like it kind of died a little bit over those years. But um, moving to today, you know, we talk a lot about the democratization of of IPOs through SPACs and how it's better institutionalized. What are the changes around the edges that you think really kind of legitimize this, the structure to this uh, hugely accepted you know, structure we're kind of seeing today? Yeah, I, I think it's it probably goes back to about five years ago, maybe. Um, I think there were a couple of transactions that really set the tone. Uh, one was Burger King. Because the the way the deal was structured, including um, sophisticated investors participating, it was obviously an institutional brand doing a transaction that was considered non-institutional at that time. The second was a company called Del Taco, which is also still public today. And likewise, that included some highly sophisticated institutional investors, private equity firms with a uh, private equity owned brand. And so I think when you you go back and look at those and really where the market pivoted, I think the aha moment for those is that institutions recognized they could participate in a transaction and get a sizable position in a transaction with a good brand which is very different than a traditional IPO, right? So that aha moment is, wow, if I participate, I will get a 25 or $50 million position. Whereas if I saw a similar IPO and I liked it and I indicated for 50 million, I might only get five. Right. And so so it was a it was a real eye-opener, I think, for some of the institutional investors that these were better transactions. They were with sophisticated companies and backers, and they could participate at a much higher level than they got participation on an IPO. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember the Burger King deal. That was a real whopper. Um, <laughs> I couldn't. It was actually, couldn't, Ack, Ackman was in that deal, yeah, too. Yeah, I, it was, I remember that. A lot of people um, forget. So I think one of the cool things as it stands today, right, you've got the SPAC route and, and IPO. PO route, and there's obviously other routes, but let's just stick on those for a minute. If you're sitting on a board and you have a chance to go public through a SPAC or an IPO, what is, what's the thought process on, you know, why you might pick a SPAC over an IPO? What do you think the advantages are of these companies, like you said, high quality companies choosing that route? Yeah, I, I think there are probably three or four unique differences. I'd probably say the number one item that comes up from an owner standpoint, that could be the CEO as an owner, or it could be a private equity or venture capital firm, and that is you negotiate price. I think that control mechanism for an owner is very different than an IPO, and particularly when you're dealing with an owner, 
that has taken a company public before and potentially has not had the best experience. I think we know in our business, there's a lot of private equity and venture capital firms that feel like they may have been taken advantage of when they priced an IPO in the past because they priced it and it went up 100%. And they were being told by the banks at the time that you have to price the deal here, it's an appropriate discount. And they felt like they left a lot of money on the table. When you get to negotiate the transaction price, you really can't hold anybody at fault, right? So it's the price that you are a willing seller Uh, somebody's a willing buyer, and there's institutions putting money behind that price. So there's true price discovery in a very transparent way that I think gives both parties a lot more confidence in the transaction. So I'd say that's number one. There are some secondary benefits. A lot of people will say you can do a deal faster. That is probably accurate, although some people debate that. I think there are people that like the fact that when from the time you announce a spec to the time you actually close the deal, you're really marketing for several months, maybe as much as four months, whereas in a IPO, it's a very short window. And so you get the ability to tell a story in a different way. And I'd say the one other thing is there's there's this transparency factor that has, I think, drawn appeal to people. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you announce a SPAC merger, you're filing information like a press release, a deck, and a deal call with the SEC. You proceed for four months to meet with investors. They could fly to your offices. They could visit your plant. That's not the way, as, as you know, an IPO works, right? An IPO, you're getting a 45-minute meeting over a five-day period, and you have to give your order, and that's it. It's almost like uh, if you're on, sitting on the other side of the table and you're trying to invest 25 or $50 million, what do you want? Do you want a 45-minute meeting where you have to say, take it or leave it, or would you prefer to get a four-month period to make a decision where you have a lot more interaction with the company? It's huge, yeah. And a um, couple of other nuances, obviously, I think versus 14 years ago, there's a super active pipe market that goes along with these deals. Maybe you could explain kind of why the why the pipe is necessary and then um, and then where, you know, that market seems to have ebbed and flowed over the last uh, 18 months, where it kind of stands today, in your opinion, as we sit here in July of 21. Yeah, I, I think the pipe market has matured a lot because it gets back to what I touched on earlier, Tom. Investors recognized they could get a full position by participating in a pipe and they could lock in this valuation. So I, I think what you saw in that market was very strong interest in the second half of last year and to some extent into earlier this year. Where the market ran into a little bit of uh, indigestion, uh, for no better term, is there are two things. A pipe is not a public security yet. So a pipe is a commitment to buy shares that have to get registered. And so if you think about a SPAC process, an investor is committing to a pipe, let's say, on day one, prior to actually announcing the merger, that merger takes place five months later. And then the pipe shares get registered 60 days after that. So from the time you commit to the time those shares actually are publicly tradable securities, let's say give or take is about six to eight months. 
The problem with that is most of the big institutional funds have a limit on what percentage of their portfolio could be in non-tradable securities. Yeah. And so a committed pipe that's unregistered qualifies as unregistered, untradable. And obviously, once it's registered, it's tradable. So you essentially free up a lot of buying power once that moves in. So I'd say what happened in the pipe market, and not a lot of the companies completely understood it, I'd like to say, if you've ever seen the Nathan's famous hot dog contest, it was like Joey Chestnut. Yeah. You know, he ate 87 hot dogs. And as he was trying to get the 88th hot dog down, you know, his mouth was full and nobody, if nobody gave him water, he wouldn't be able to force it in. Well, the pipe market in a lot of ways is uh, somebody needed to give uh, Joey Chestnut some water. They just needed some of these deals to close the shares to get registered so the capital could get recycled. And there were just too many deals coming at too quick a pace. And so I think what you're seeing in the market now is this maturity, uh, a couple of things. The amount of deal volume is, is a more measured pace, number one. Number two is institutional investors are a lot more sophisticated, so they're Uh, focusing on the types of companies and the types of deals. And so they're paying very close attention. And then three, I think most importantly, where some of these deals have changed is the company that's partnering with the SPAC and the SPACs themselves are getting more sophisticated. So you're seeing serial SPAC issuers that actually write their own checks in the pipe or get commitments in a pipe, or they're bringing other strategic capital. So think about a deal whereby you want to do a $200 million pipe, but when they market it, half of it's spoken for with strategic money or the SPAC investors putting up capital as opposed to an institution. So you're creating a a much more finite market, a higher quality deal where the SPAC sponsor or other strategic investors are participants in the transaction. And so I think all of those things are coming together to create what I'd say is natural, a more mature, higher quality market, better for companies, better for investors. Yeah, like more institutionalized. And, you know, it's like anything else, the people who are successful on Wall Street and prove themselves to be amazing investors, pools of capital form around them. And so it's just an easier process that people are going to understand. One other thing, Don, I think is really interesting is I think there were so many SPACs in in Q1 and certainly in the last 12 months, the SEC kind of, I feel like they said, all right, we're going to tap the brakes here somehow. There seems to be a lot of controversy, a lot of noise in the press. There's a group of folks that obviously think that the SEC might start to treat SPACs more like IPOs in terms of disclosure and things like that. What's your take on regulation? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What What do you think is happening? Yeah, I, I think the SEC, you know, if you kind of think about their role is to protect investors, first and foremost. And so I think the first area that they felt like it was important uh, was they tackled warrants And nobody really cared about how warrants were valued or not valued. It was more of a technical issue to potentially slow the process down. And they certainly achieved that. I think we're, if you look at what the SEC has said recently and some of the actions that they've taken, I think they want to protect investors by making sure SPAC sponsors are fully disclosing how and when they get their incentives. Two, 
they want to make sure the SPAC sponsors and the companies are properly disclosing information as part of these transactions. And so there was recently a company and a SPAC sponsor were fined for inaccurate disclosures. And I do think the SEC is going to have zero tolerance for inappropriate or inaccurate disclosures. And we, we've also seen that in some deals from last year where, you know, you saw executives leave a company for uh, inappropriate disclosures. I think the third thing is when you kind of pull both of those together, I think they'll continue to monitor transactions in a way that protects all investors. I think the some of the headlines, and there was a hearing in Washington, D.C. about this, about the lack of protections for retail investors. And I think people were confused because the fundamentally, uh, an investor that buys a SPAC share has better protections than anything out there because you have the right to redeem with interest. So you can't buy something from Amazon and return it four months later and get your money back with interest. There's very few things that work that way. So I think fundamentally, some of the politicians don't understand how the structure works exactly. That is a very big difference between investor protection, meaning downside protection, as opposed to somebody not being truthful to investors to get them to buy stock in the hope it goes up. And so I think there there wasn't enough of differentiation on market, but it's a it's a long-winded way of saying is the SEC from a protection standpoint cares about appropriate disclosures. Yeah, and I think look, a, a, any reasonable regulation would be a a widespread approval of of the structure, I think and and make it even more institutionalized than it is today. One area that I wanted to talk to you about was there's obviously 400 SPACs out there, 400 plus looking for targets. And that's a lot of capital out there chasing deals. They've got 24 months to consummate an acquisition. How many of those, like when you look at the history of SPACs, what, what do you think you expect in terms of liquidations, number one? And number two, can that window be extended beyond 24 months? Yeah, so first, they, SPACs traditionally have the ability to extend, let's just say, a rule of thumb could be as much as six months. There are some SPACs that are shortening the time frame to essentially better market their IPO. But but think of it as two years with six months worth of extensions that you can pay for. Uh, you have to pay incremental interest or you may have to overfund the SPAC uh, trust account. I think the you know the way I would characterize the market is it was building like any market builds. It got to a feverish pitch in the first quarter, which was unsustainable. And a lot of people refer to it as a SPAC bubble. I think the reality is the market has fallen into a much more natural pace, which is probably... 15 to 20 SPAC IPOs a month. I think that's digestible. When you look at the total universe of unicorns out there that could be potential merger partners, I think it's a much more measured pace. It's much more appropriate. A, B is the people doing the SPAC IPOs are very different. The quality has gone up dramatically. I think what you saw in the first quarter is anybody with a, a partner and maybe it was an athlete or a musician, we won't pick on any of them, 
but probably my my dog could have uh, raised the SPAC too. I think that's not healthy for the market. So I think the market's gotten much more disciplined, number one. Number two is the cost to be a SPAC sponsor has gone up. You know, banks, if you speak to them, say they want an overfunded trust account. So they, they want to make sure you're putting up a little bit more risk capital, which I think is real important. And I think the third thing, as I touched on earlier, the quality of the sponsor isn't just covering the trust account, but they're committing to put 25 or 50 or more million into the deal in the form of a pipe or as a backstop. And you've, you've seen several SPAC uh, sponsors that have come up with even hybrid structures where they will buy backstop the entire deal. And that is a very, very different SPAC than one that doesn't have that. So I think where the market is, I would predict is a 150, maybe as many as 200 IPOs a year, I think is very sustainable. I think if the market gets weak, I think you could potentially see an acceleration of SPACs where IPOs aren't as competitive because I think in a down market, even when you saw at the start of COVID, the only companies that went public were SPACs. I think people are underestimating the benefit of a structure that gives you your money back plus interest if you don't like the deal. And then I think the third thing is on liquidations, you know, the historical average is uh, if you look over a long period, when I say long period, let's say the last five years or so, it's probably about 10%. I actually, it's kind of odd. I think it's going to go down, not because the historical average is is good or bad, but because the quality of the participants tends to be better and because people understand the structure better. When you look at some of the liquidations from even five years ago, they tended to be concentrated in industries like energy. And so they were some very speculative businesses. I think what you'll see if it's not the best SPAC transaction, but they have a pipe commitment, the deal will close, but redemptions will be higher. And I think that's the one unique piece. So you, in fact, we've seen it. We've seen a deal close recently with 85% redemptions, but they were still able to raise 300 million in a pipe. And so, you know, the deal got done. Yeah, you got to wonder if those original investors in the SPAC were serious, you know, or just kind of looking at looking at it as a call option that might go up and they can make it, you know, some percentage points. And then all of a sudden they just redeem no matter what. Right. So it gets back to that Amazon analogy. Right. They took their money back with interest. I mean, it is a powerful arbiter of an interesting deal, because if, you know, if I really think your deal is a POS. I'm going to take my money back with interest. And it was unfortunate when I heard that, uh, listened to the hearing in DC, not one politician actually understood that you can get your money back with interest. Yeah, And so it's, uh, it's something that is a real powerful differentiator from any other structure. And so before any regulatory body tries to change something. I think it's one of the best innovations as a venue or a conduit for companies to go public because they've created unique protections for in- investors who, who buy SPAC shares. Because like I said, if you, if you don't like the target they find- Take it back. You can take your money and leave. Once the SPAC has announced its target, 
there's a marketing period where the SPAC has limited time to drive interest with potential investors and more generally elevate the brand with key stakeholders. It's kind of like an IPO on steroids. I asked Don how companies should structure their communication and approach to maximize the marketing period and some common mistakes he's seen SPACs and their targets make that often jeopardize or inject unnecessary risk into the deal. Yeah, I, I think there are a few things. You know, when we talk about these transactions, we don't talk about them as a transaction. We actually talk about them as a four-step process. And I think uh, the first step is announcing everything leading up to announcing a deal. The second is marketing a deal. The third is closing a deal. And the fourth is transitioning to public company life. I think the first thing where people make a mistake is when you announce the deal, it's a little bit like a tree in the forest and, you know, whether it makes a noise or not, right? And the issue is there's this element of surprise with a SPAC. An IPO, you file, you flip publicly. Everybody knows you're coming public because you're on file and the media covers you. With a SPAC, you announce the merger. And at the day before, unless there was a leak, nobody actually knows you're about to announce it. So the first thing where people make a mistake is they assume putting a press release out and doing a call drives awareness. Huge mistake. And what you do have to do is you have to build highly detailed targeting, which we've done very effectively on these transactions with the buy side, with the sell side, with media outlets. The second mistake people make is, you know, after you announce a deal, there's some very important things that have to happen. News of a SPAC merger gets old in two days, but you don't close the deal for four plus months or five months. And so you really need to think about a cadence of other business developments and news that you can share. You need to think about marketing and waves to investors. Uh, you do need to run an analyst day. They have to be prepared to do that effectively. And you need to think about getting into conferences to tell the story. So there's all of these details that go into, as I like to say, it's a campaign. And what are all the effective tactics you can use in a campaign to drive awareness around your deal? And you have to do those well in a timely period when this stuff comes together. The third thing where folks make some mistake is that these deals just close and they don't close by themselves. They're, uh, the SPAC shareholders get to vote. The SPAC shareholders have this unique right of redemption. And so the target business and even the SPAC need to understand there are some unique things that have to happen around the close of driving awareness around voting. We all take for granted that shareholders know how to vote. So Fidelity knows how to vote, but some family offices may not. People on some of these trading platforms uh, don't know how to vote in a timely manner. And so it's very important to drive awareness around. The other key thing is they have to actually, the target business technically really picks the exchange they want to be listed on. And there's a lot of things that they can negotiate that will enhance awareness around their deal if they negotiate with the stock exchanges. And then last but not least, um, you close a deal and all the advisors go home and you're public. And I think what some of these companies forget is uh, all the advisors go home. Uh, we, we don't, but we stay with them. But they they do need to realize the transaction closes. They're going to be a reporting company. They're going to have an earnings call coming up relatively quickly. They're the most important earnings call probably of their public existence, their first earnings call. And so they're going to really need to knock it out of the park for that event. But there's also what I would say a little bit of baggage from the SPAC that's there. Uh, SPACs have warrants and warrants create an overhang. SPACs have a pipe. Um, pipe 
shares get registered in 60 days. So in your first 100 to 180 days of public existence, a company that goes public through SPAC has to deal with some things that a typical IPO doesn't. And it's really important that they handle those. You got to have some momentum. Exactly. And a plan. And so, as I like to say, you know, the deal closes, marketing doesn't stop. You want to make sure you have a robust IR plan in place. You want to make sure you're visible. You want to make sure you're well-prepared. Analysts are going to be launching coverage. You have to have an analyst program in place. So there's a lot of things on your activity list. So it's a long-winded way of saying when you get through, if you do those four steps and you follow them, it does lead to successful transactions. But most people miss a lot of pieces of each of those steps and thus end up in a place uh, that they don't want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a couple of questions about after the the deal closes and management is kind of on their own, but I do want to backtrack for a second because I think it's fascinating how the media strategy on an IPO is so different from the media strategy in a SPAC. And you did touch on uh, a lot of it there, but just contrast it with the IPO because I think it's just kind of fascinating when you when you think about the difference. Yeah, no, it's a good point. You know, look, a company going public, and uh, many of us have been there, when you, the first thing you do when you sit down with your lawyers is they kind of tell you to shut up and crawl under a rock. Don't talk to anybody. There's this period prior to really once you hire lawyers before you even file where everybody is paranoid that you will trigger an inappropriate disclosure that can delay your IPO. And in fact, that happened on the Google IPO. It's called, it's gun jumping. And so nobody wants you to do anything that might be deemed promoting your IPO. Uh, SPAC, it's different because you, you can talk about everything that you put in your filing and you can do media. And so it's so critical to really think about what media opportunities there are, what they would be interested in, what assets that you have or business developments. And again, because most companies or their management teams technically have never been through a transaction like this before, they just don't know. They don't understand that. And so uh, it becomes real critical to think about not just a event, but uh, a plan and how you're going to orchestrate this for a, a four to as much as six month window. Yeah. And that that brings me to one of the final questions, which is, you know, We've seen all kinds of management teams over the years, and and many are absolutely fantastic operators. They know how to build their business, but they don't really get the art of the stock market and how to be a public company. That's no fault of their own. But I do know that once a company is public, if they don't have a plan, they could be a sitting duck for short sellers. You know, obviously, you talked about a plan, and and having a plan and backing it up with numbers is is always a way to, you know, rid yourself of short sellers or the threat of that. You know, what, what's your take? What can companies do to kind of better protect themselves from being left alone to navigate it? And then all these short sellers come in and start doing some uh, selling of the stock or, or trying to short it. Yeah, it's a really good point, Tom, because in a lot of ways, when we touched on these capital markets activities that happen after closing, it's a little bit like a short seller's dream come true. Because there are very few times when anybody knows exactly when shares are going to come to market. It's like a lockup expiring. Everybody knows it's happening in 180 days. But in a SPAC transaction, the company has an obligation to register the pipe shares. 
And so if you just think for a minute, if a SPAC is $200 million and they raise a $200 million pipe, I know 60 days after the merger closes that 100% more shares are going to be available to trade in the market. That creates this very unique inflection point uh, in a company's public life that supply potentially could dramatically exceed demand. Obviously, short sellers have figured this out, and they perfectly time when they want to drop a hand grenade in a company's lap, whether their criticisms are accurate or not. But you know what you've seen is some companies have had sloppy disclosure. You know, some companies have rolled non-working trucks down hills and videotaped it and suggested it was a production model. And they've gotten in trouble by regulators and other folks. But what short sales have been able to expose is real shortcomings in a few deals. Now, in a majority of the cases that have out, been out there, we've seen some inaccurate short sell accusations, but they've been nonetheless successful of driving the stock price down, not because their accusations were true, but because they timed the accusations to supply increasing by 100% in the float. And so you don't have to be that smart to get that right. It's just timing. You talk about the company like they should have a plan. Well, you need to know that there are professionals on the other side, including short sellers, that have a plan. Exactly. And they're lurking. I mean, they're lurking because it's like anything, they know what is about to happen. And if you do have a, a business that maybe has something controversial, if you do have uh, some disclosure that's hanging out there that isn't perfectly accurate, you know, those are the types of things that they're going to attack. Yeah. Um, well, my last question, Don, is I call it the price is right uh, question, which uh, you're very familiar with. And SPACs to me, and I think you would, you obviously said it today and totally agree, it's a structure that's here to stay. You've got direct listings, you've got IPOs, you know, you've got SPACs. And it seems like there was a 10-year period where companies were staying private longer, and that was really the in thing to do. It seems like the pendulum has swung back a little bit. Again, if you're the owner of an asset, how are you thinking about all your options for liquidity? Yeah, no, listen, I think I think you described at the start of it. The great thing about the capital markets is it consistently tries to find innovations. And I think, you know, we had really gone through a 18 to 20 year period where the private equity market had a huge advantage over the public markets. And that is they had a lot of capital and they could create liquidity relatively quickly at what seemed like appropriate valuations for businesses. I think what you're seeing today is the public markets have adjusted with direct listings, with SPACs, and with IPOs where they've changed some of the rules and they've really created this flexibility that gives a private company a lot more optionality. And to your point, the price is right. If five plus years ago, you were really looking at what options you had, it was sell the business or IPO. Today, it would be sell the business, IPO, SPAC, direct listing. It's you know created tremendous optionality, and even if you look at the direct listings and the and the size of some of these businesses going through a direct listing, 
it tells you that that structure works for certain companies too. And what I think is so fascinating about the SPAC structure is it's a little bit like uh, an accordion. You know, you can make it bigger or make it smaller to fit the needs of a particular transaction. It it really has, and if you look at even some of the SPACs have raised 150 million, some of them raised as much as 500 million, but you can upsize a deal with a pipe. And so it gives you this unique ability to raise the right amount of capital to fit the target business. And I, I think those are the kind of things that just an IPO doesn't create that much flexibility for, also doesn't give you the ability, uh, and you don't see a lot of IPOs today with a big chunk of selling shareholders. So SPAC structures really can solve for a lot of things some of the other structures don't, including primary and secondary capital in a, in a material way. And I think most of all, it gets back to the issue that you and I touched on earlier, which is this issue of transparency. Uh, People that own a lot of equity in private companies take that seriously. They think they know what it's worth. And if they don't think they're going to get it or they've been burned by an IPO process before, I think it empowers them to negotiate a clearing price that they're comfortable with. Like Don said, SPACs provide great optionality for companies that want to go public, and built-in protections for investors have only institutionalized the structure. But to succeed, there must be a pressure-tested business and communications plan to create momentum into the public markets. I'd like to thank Don Duffy, president of ICR, for joining us. He's the best in the business, and ICR wouldn't be where it is today without him, without his knowledge, without his tactical expertise and drive. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show. Wherever you get your podcasts, it really helps. We'll see you next time, back in the arena. 